Chapter One of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Randall. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. George Moore's Text. One. Shall I ever forget the night? on which I looked for the first time on the life of George Moore, merchant and philanthropist, by Samuel Smiles. I was only a small boy at the time, yet the memory of it rushes back so vividly upon me that it seems impossible that, since then, so many years have flown. I had, a few months earlier, made a most sensational discovery the discovery of the possibilities of a circulating library. My schoolfellow, Gilbert Finch, a boy of about my own age, had introduced me to a dingy little schoolroom not far from home where, in return for the modest outlay of a penny a month, I could borrow as many tales of adventure as I could manage to devour. When I reflect on the hordes of cannibals, red Indians, brigands, pirates, and smugglers that I obtained in exchange for that first penny, I catch myself wondering whether, in the entire history of finance, one solitary copper coin was ever made to go so far. In every spare minute, from daylight to dark, I curled myself up in my father's capacious armchair and lost myself among the grisly bears of the Rocky Mountains, the boar constrictors of the Amazon, the wolves of Siberia, the whales of the Indian Ocean, the elephants of Africa, and the tigers of Bengo. I rumped through Ballantyne and Marriott, Maine Reed, and Finneymore Cooper in no time. I wondered how I had contrived to fill in the dreary days of human existence before the little library was revealed to me. And then, just as my fevered brain was becoming one confused jumble of Indian wigwams, Arab tents, Zulu crawls, Arctic snow huts, and smugglers' caves, my father suddenly took it into his head that such an unmixed diet of wild excitement was not conducive to the best intellectual development. He urged me to try a change and, from some more sedate library that he himself patronized, he brought me the life of George Moore. I glanced through it, but could see no sign of a shipwreck or a slave raid or a scalp hunt anywhere. Still, I felt that, since my father provided me with the pennies that brought me such torrents of enjoyment from my own library, it was due to him that I should make an honest attempt to sample his. I read the ponderous volume from cover to cover, and to my astonishment, it filled me with a delight of which, in anticipation, I had never dreamed. After an interval of forty years, I have read the book again, and every incident seems wonderfully familiar. I owe to that childish experience a penchant for biography that has deepened rather than evaporated with the years. Two. This brawling little burn that winds its way in and out among the alders and the willows of this green, green valley is the Dalbeck. 
It is hurrying excitedly down the glen that it may throw itself with a laugh into the waters of the River Ellen. That glorious old mansion on the hillside, with masses of cream-colored roses clustering luxuriantly over its walls, and thousands of lilies flecking, like snowflakes, the yew hedge that divides the garden from the bowling green, is Whitehall, the home of George Moore. The house is surrounded by undulating lawns, winding walks, well-kept flower beds, and graceful shrubberies. In the old days of border warfare, it played a great part in the history of the countryside. It even figures prominently in one of Sir Walter Scott's romances. Not far away, over the hill yonder, is the tiny village of Millsgate, where George Moore was born. How little he dreamed in the old days when, as a poor boy, he fished in the Ellen and ransacked the wide chimney of Whitehall in search of Jack Dahl's eggs, that one day this magnificent estate would be his very own. And here is the man himself, enjoying, in company with his big bulldog Jack, one of those rambles of which he is so fond. He is a striking figure, sturdy and massive. In his youth, he was one of the best wrestlers in the country. His whole aspect impresses you as that of a man of blunt frankness, robust character, and indomitable energy. His alert brown eyes, eager and penetrating, have an emphatically dauntless look. His mouth, too, is firm and powerful. His fine head, with its abundance of curly hair, is set squarely upon his shoulders. You feel that you are in the presence of a strong man and a good one. 3. In his younger days, George Moore was a commercial traveler, and he reveled in the society of commercial travelers to the end of his life. In the interests of his firm, he visited every town of importance in Great Britain and America. But the most remarkable of his travels was undertaken in his 45th year, for in that year he made the greatest journey that any man could make. He passed from death unto life. The extraordinary thing about George Moore is that he did not begin his spiritual pilgrimage until he was at the zenith of his powers and at the climax of his illustrious career. Before his need of a savior pressed itself at all urgently upon him, he had been ten years married, had become a partner in his firm, and established his position in life, had been invited by the Lord Mayor of London to become sheriff of the city, had been offered an important seat in Parliament, and had earned a great reputation for philanthropy. The story of his spiritual experience, carefully recorded, was found among his papers after his death. In the first part of his life, he says, he had no time to think. At night, I tumbled into bed without asking God's blessing, and I was generally so tired that I fell asleep in a few minutes. No time to think. This, doubtless, was his general condition, but to that general rule there were notable exceptions, three particularly. There was one never-to-be-forgotten occasion on which he spent the whole night thinking. It was the night after his mother's funeral. He was only six at the time. As soon as they told him that his mother was dead, 
He was filled with curiosity and dread. What had happened to her? He timidly crept to her bedside, uncovered the cold, white face, touched it, spoke to her, and was puzzled by her icy indifference. On the night after the funeral, he slept with his father in the bed from which his mother's body had just been taken. He was frightened, startled, horror-stricken. Where was she? He never once closed his eyes, and to the last day of his life, that terrifying experience haunted his memory. That night was certainly an exception. That night, he thought. He thought of life. He thought of death. He thought, in his childish way, of immortality. There was another occasion on which he thought. It was during his apprenticeship at Wington. He became enslaved by the gambling habit and often sat at the card table till the gray and ghostly dawn came stilling through the windows. One early morning, it was the morning of Christmas Day, he returned to his room to find that he had been locked out. By dint of climbing over roofs and chimneys, an art which he had acquired when searching for jackdaw's eggs, he managed to gain interest to his room through the window. He slipped into bed, but not to sleep. For very soon the waits came around, singing the Christmas carols. The sweet music woke me to a sense of my wrongdoing. I felt overwhelmed with penitence and remorse. I thought of my dear father and feared that I might break his heart and bring down his gray hairs in sorrow to the grave. He remained in bed all day, thinking. I resolved, he says, to give up card-playing and gambling, and true to his pledge, he never again touched a card or hazarded a coin. The third occasion on which he thought was in his forty-fifth year, it suddenly occurred to him that neither his great success nor his immense popularity nor his princely benefactions could atone for his sins or blot out a certain inner defilement of which he was becoming increasingly conscious. I am painfully aware, he says, of the depravity of my own heart. It worried him. The anxiety of it kept him awake at night. He would rise in the darkness, kneel in anguish by his bedside, and pray for deliverance. For the last two years, he says, I have been earnestly asking God to give me some sudden change of heart, but no sudden change comes. With bitter tears, he sought the way of repentance, but like Esau, could not find it. It seems, he moaned, as if God has hidden his face from me. And then, like a flash, the light broke upon him, and all his wretchedness was gone. 4. It was a text that did it. It suddenly occurred to him that he had been confusing the salvation of his soul with the arrival of certain moods, feelings, and sensations. Because no rush of ecstasy had swept into his heart, he had taken it for granted that God had turned a deaf ear to his piteous cries and passionate entreaties. He saw his mistake. I am determined for the future, he says, not to perplex my mind with seeking for some extraordinary impressions, signs, or tokens of the new birth. I believe the gospel. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I receive with confidence the promise that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, 
and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He rested implicitly on that promise and entered into peace. George Moore's testimony reminds me of Frank Bullen's experience with the same text. It was in the old sail loft at Port Chalmers in New Zealand. Little Mr. Falconer, the sailor's missionary, had conducted an evangelistic service. Frank Bullen, then a sailor lad, was impressed and remained behind for further conversation. Mr. Falconer quoted to him the promise on which George Moore had rested with such confidence. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Frank Bullen said that he believed, yet his belief brought him no assurance of deliverance. Ah, I see how it is, exclaimed Mr. Falconer. You are waiting for the witness of your feelings to the truth of him who is himself the truth. You dare not take him at his word unless your feelings, which are subject to a thousand changes a day, corroborate it. You must believe him in spite of your feelings and act accordingly. In a moment, says Frank Bullen, in telling the story years afterwards, in a moment the hidden mystery was made clear to me, and I say it quietly, I see, sir. It is the credibility of God against the witness of my feelings. Then I believe God. Let us thank God, answered the little man, and together we knelt down by the bench. Little more was said. There was no extravagant joy, no glorious bursting into light and liberty, such as I have read about as happening on these occasions. It was just the satisfaction of having found one's way after long groping in darkness and misery. That was George Moore's experience exactly. And when I see this stately verily, verily, opening the door of deliverance to this simple sailor lad on one side of the world and to this great merchant and philanthropist on the other, I feel that there are none among the sons of men to whom it will deny its emancipating ministry. He that believeth, says the text, George Moore believed, and he kept on believing. The foremost feature in his character, the biography tells us, was the admirable simplicity of his faith. And in his own diary, I come upon entries such as these. Every day I feel more and more my own unworthiness. I have nothing to rest upon but Christ, yet surely that is enough for me. Just as I am, without one plea, a poor, unworthy sinner. Christ takes me as I am, without money or price or works. My works are nothing. Such a change had the text wrought. He made Mrs. Moore promise, and he often reminded her of her pledge, that if she was with him when he was dying, she would repeat the words to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. 5. The text transfigured everything. It even transfigured his philanthropy. He always reveled in giving away his money. Every New Year's Day, as he started a new pocketbook, he inscribed upon the flyleaf the lines, What I spent, I had. 
What I saved, I lost. What I gave, I have. He began each year by sending large checks to the charities and organizations in which he was interested, many of which he had himself inaugurated. He enjoyed giving. If the world only knew half the happiness that a man has in doing good, he used to say, it would do a great deal more. And when he first began to feel his need of a savior, he would add, I wish that my faith were as strong as my works. And when faith came, his works were glorified by its coming. It gave to all his activities a new and higher motive. He hung in his smoke room an illuminated tablet on which was inscribed the 13th chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, the chapter that magnifies the glory of love. In large bright letters at the head of the tablet were the words, Charity never faileth, and at the foot now abideth faith. Those two inscriptions are very significant. George Moore's later life represents the wedding of faith to charity. He felt that it was not enough to give money and to give it lavishly. I believe, he said in addressing a great public meeting at Aldersgate Street, I believe that mere money, unless it be given for the love of Jesus, is as filthy rags in the sight of God. He therefore felt it his duty to give it in such a way that those for whose benefit it was designed were made aware of the love that prompted it. He was not content to post checks to treasurers. In spite of the protests of his friends, who thought it undignified for a rich city merchant to mingle with the raggedness and filth of the slums, he went fearlessly and familiarly among the thieves, tramps, and vagrants who herded in London's squalor. I feel, he explained, that nothing can reach to the death of human misery or heal such sorrow but the love of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who yearned over such people with infinite pity and gave his life for his lost sheep. 6. The Carriage is at the Door George Moore, now a man of seventy, is driving off to preside at a meeting of the nurse's institution. What, he asked his wife as he bade her goodbye, what is that passage that I want to quote? Oh, I remember. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But that speech was never to be delivered. He was knocked down by a pair of runaway horses. Mrs. Moore hurried to the inn in which he was dying, and bending over him, quoted the text in accordance with her promise. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He looked wistfully into my face, says Mrs. Moore, and he told me that he was not afraid. His Savior would never leave him, nor forsake him. Several times afterwards he spoke to me, expressing the same trust. He knew perfectly well that he was dying, but his faith failed not. From death unto life. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He intended to have quoted the words to others. The program was altered and he went to hear them addressed to himself. End of chapter 1